All right, so we are now starting um, part two, chapter two, uh, section three of uh, on the mode of existence of technical objects. Um, so we have uh, just this section and then one more section, um, and then we're going to be done part two. Um, and we, part three, I think, is the most interesting part of the book, uh, or anyways, the part that I find the most interesting. So um, I think it will be exciting to start that. Um, possibly next week or the week after, depending on how far we get today. Um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, so I'll start reading and then we can just uh, alternate uh, readings uh, as we go along. What page are we on, just out of curiosity? Oh, right, uh, we're at page 147. Okay, so I'll start. Section three, limits of the technical notion of information, sorry, limits of the technological notion of information in order to account for the relation between man and the technical object, the margin of indeterminacy in technical individuals, automatism. A philosophy of technics, however, cannot be founded exclusively on an unconditional quest for form and efficiency of form in the transmission of information. Yet the two kinds of efficiency which appear to diverge and which in fact already diverge at the very beginning are, are once again encountered further on when the quantity of energy that serves as a carrier for information tends toward a very low level, a new type of output loss appears, one that is due to the elementary discontinuity of energy. The energy that serves as an information carrier is in fact modulated in two ways, artificially by the signal that is to be transmitted, essentially by virtue of its physical nature, by the elementary discontinuity. This elementary discontinuity appears when the average energy level is of an order of magnitude that is barely superior to instantaneous variations due to the elementary discontinuity of energy. Artificial modulation then conflates itself with this essential modulation, with this white noise or fog that superimposes itself on the transmission. It is not a question here of a harmonic distortion, for this is a modulation that is independent from that of the signal and not simply a deformation or impoverishment of the signal. Now, in order to diminish the background noise, one can diminish the bandwidth, which also diminishes the informational efficiency of the channel under consideration. A compromise must be struck that preserves an informational efficiency sufficient for practical needs and an energetic efficiency that is sufficiently high to keep the background noise at a level where it does not trouble the reception of the signal. Um, I probably should have mentioned before we started, uh, just like to recap a little bit of what we did last time. Um, so he was distinguishing between, in, in the last section, he distinguished between two different forms of efficiency or two different uh, notions of efficiency. Um, so uh, energetic efficiency has to do with the transformation of energy. Um, so to what extent, for example, is heat transformed into motion in um, uh, a thermal engine? Um, um, and <clears throat> um, this form of efficiency um, or Prioritizing this form of efficiency tends to um, incentivize the creation of bigger and bigger structures. So giant turbines, giant um, dams, giant engines, and so on. Um, because the bigger they are, um, the, the more efficient the uh, transformation of energy is. Um, and whereas the second form of efficiency, uh, or the second notion of efficiency that he's going to develop more in, in this section that we're just starting today, is uh, informational efficiency. So um, the capacity to transmit information without distortion or without loss of information. Um, and um, so he's mentioned before, but he's going to develop further. Um, that this tends, on the contrary, um, to develop uh, in smaller and smaller objects. So you have uh, less 
loss of information uh, when you have smaller, um, uh, shorter distances to transmit the information. Um, and so we see this development with uh, microchips and uh, smaller and smaller circuits in computers um, and you know, packing more and more uh, circuitry into uh, a given area. Uh, right, so that's that's sort of where we are now. He's going to further develop that notion of uh, efficiency, efficiency of information transmission. And would someone else like to read the next paragraph? I can read. And yet this antagonism, which is barely acknowledged in the recent work going on in the philosophy of information techniques, marks the non-univocal aspect of the notion of information. Information is, in a sense, that which can be infinitely varied, that which, in order to be transmitted with the least possible loss, requires a sacrifice of energy efficiency so as to avoid any reduction of the range of possibilities. The most faithful amplifier is the one with a very uniform efficiency independent of the scale of frequencies. It favors none of them, imposes no resonance, no stereotypy, no pre-established regularity onto the open series of varied signals that it must transmit. But information, in another sense, is that which, in order to be transmitted, must be above the level of pure random phenomena, such as white noise or thermal agitation. Information is then that which possesses a regularity, a localization, a defined domain, a determined stereotypy, through which, uh, through which information distinguishes itself from pure chance. When the level of background noise is high, the information signal can still be saved if it has a certain law, in other words, if it offers a certain predictability of the unfolding of the temporal series of the successive states that constitute it. In television, for instance, the fact that the frequency of the time base is well determined in advance allows for the synchronization timing pips to be extracted from an equally important background noise by blocking the synchronization devices nine-tenths of the time and by unblocking them for just a brief instant, for instance, a millionth of a second, when the synchronization timing pip must set in by virtue of the previously defined law of recurrence. This is the phase comparison device used for long-distance receptions. The reception of synchronization signals, in turn, must indeed be treated as information, but this information is more easily extracted from background noise because the perturbing action of the background noise can be limited to a very small fraction of the total time Thereby, thereby rejecting as insignificant all the manifestations of background noise that fall outside this instant. This device is, of course, ineffective against a parasitic signal, which itself obeys a recurrent law with a period very close to the period intended for signal reception. There are thus two aspects of information which distinguish themselves technically through the opposed conditions necessary for their transmission. In one sense, information is that which brings about a series of unpredictable new states not belonging to any series that could be defined in advance. It is thus that which requires an absolute availability of the information channel regarding all the aspects of modulation that it bears. The information channel itself must not contribute any predetermined form of its own, nor be selective. A perfectly faithful amplifier would have it to be able to transmit all frequencies and amplitudes. In this sense, information has certain aspects in common with purely contingent lawless phenomena, such as the movements of thermal molecular agitation, radioactive emissions, discontinuous electronic emissions in the thermoelectric or photoelectric effect. 
This is why a very faithful amplifier has greater background noise than an amplifier with smaller bandwidth because it uniformly amplifies the white noises produced in its diverse circuits by diverse causes, by thermal effects in the resistances, and by discontinuity of electronic emission in the tubes. Noise, however, has no signification, whereas information has signification. By contrast, information distinguishes itself from noise because it can be assigned a certain code, a relative uniformization. In any case where noise cannot be directly reduced below a certain level, a reduction of the margin of indeterminacy and unpredictability of the information signals is performed. Such is the case mentioned above of the reception of synchronization signals by a phase com comparator. What is reduced here is the margin of temporal indeterminacy. It is assumed that the signal will produce itself at a certain moment in a temporal interval equal to a minimal fraction, perfectly determined by its phase of the period of the recurrent phenomenon. The device can be tuned all the more finely as the stability of the transmitter and the stability of the receptor increase. The greater the predictability of the signal, the easier it is for it to be distinguished from the chance phenomenon called background noise. The same holds true for the reduction of the, fre of the frequency band. When a circuit can no longer transmit speech because of a high level of background noise, one can use a transmission of signals in a single frequency, as is done with the Morse code. At reception, a filter adapted to the unique frequency of transmission only allows for those sounds to pass whose frequency falls within this narrow band. A low level of background noise then comes through, all the more reduced as the received band narrows, i.e. as the resonance becomes sharper. Thanks. That was a long, long paragraph. <clears throat> so again, this is a, a further development of um, the the notion of information. Um, so drawing on uh, information theory, but he wants to, um, I guess, uh, extend that notion or um, further uh, develop that notion. Uh, so within information theory, uh, information is um, is understood as um, unpredictable, as something unpredictable, right? So um, uh, you, whatever elements of a, of a message are predictable are redundant. Um, so you can measure the amount of redundancy within a message. Um, um, and then only what is uh, not predictable is, uh, is the new information that's transmitted by the message. Um, but um, so, Simonon here is distinguishing between this sort of pure, um, uh, purely new information, as in the unpredictable, um, and then the regularities within what's transmitted. So, uh, if you're just trying to transmit uh, the purely unpredictable information, then you need to have um, uh, a transmission system that is uh, completely neutral with regard to the different, uh, you know, frequencies and and um, different possibilities to be transmitted. Whereas if you're transmitting something that has uh, structure and a uh, certain predictability to it, then you can, for example, use a, um, a bandpass filter to only transmit uh, a certain uh, range of frequencies. And then you're filtering out background noise that is at other frequencies. Um, so uh, yeah, so there's these two different um, uh, notions of information transmission, whether you're transmitting something unpredictable or something predictable. And of course, any um, real message, uh, whether it's speech or, or uh, written text or whatever it is, 
is going to be um, somewhere in between the two or a mix of the two. I ha I use um, some some pass filters, frequency pass filters for editing the the audio from um, this this book group. So it's interesting that we're talking about that inside the book. Yeah, um, like any any sort of audio editing, you use low pass, high pass, band pass, those types of filters to. Um, you know, you block out, like you'll use a, um, a high pass filter to block out sort of like a low rumble type of noise that's, uh, um, you know, causing distortion. Um, or you'll use a, a low pass filter to block out um, any sort of, if there's like a, um, like a high hum or, or you know, electronic type of sound, um, something like that. So, um, yeah, any, any types of uh, noise that um, appears in one sort of one frequency band, you can use different filters to try to block it out um, because you have uh, a message that's predictable um, rather than just pure uh, unpredictable information. Okay, would someone else like to read the next paragraph? Uh, I can go if you like. Sure, sounds good. This opposition represents a technical antinomy that poses a problem for philosophical thought. Information is like the chance event, but it nevertheless distinguishes itself from it. An absolute stereotypy excluding all novelty also excludes all information. And yet, in order to distinguish information from noise, one takes an aspect of the reduction of the limits of indeterminacy as a basis. If time bases were truly incorruptible, like Leibniz monads, then one could reduce the synchronization time of the oscillator as much as desired. The informing role of the synchronizing pulse would entirely disappear because there would be nothing to synchronize. The synchronization signal would have no aspect of unpredictability with respect to the oscillator to be synchronized. In order for the informational nature of the signal to subsist, a certain margin of indeterminacy must subsist. Predictability is the ground receiving this supplementary precision distinguishing it in advance from pure chance in a great number of cases, partially preforming it. Information is thus halfway between pure chance and absolute regularity. One can say that form, conceived as absolute spatial as well as temporal regularity, is not information but a condition of information. It is what receives information, the a priori that receives information. Form has a function of selectivity. But information is not form, nor is it a collection ensemble of forms. It is the variability of forms, the influx of variation with respect to a form. It is the unpredictability of a variation of form, not pure unpredictability of all variation. You will thus be led to distinguish three terms, pure chance, form, and information. Right, so this is the... Uh the point that he was um, sort of building to in, in the last section about how um, this more developed notion of information is intermediate between uh, pure chance and form or, or structure. Uh, so it's something that um, it's a, a variation on form. It's not just um, pure um, pure variation or, or purely unstructured um, uh, chance. And maybe I should explain also that uh, reference to Leibniz there um, about the, the monads. Um, 
So uh, Leibniz um, developed this idea of the monads. Um, so as he, he puts it, they have no windows. So each monad is um, independent of the rest of the of the world, and they sort of they have an internal um, evolution or or development, um, and they're all sort of synchronized with each other. So he he compares it to um, um, you know a, a pair of of clocks or a set of clocks that uh, that are uh, started at the same time and they'll continue their their progression uh, in time with each other. But there's no influence of one clock on the other to make match each other in time. It's the it's purely internal um, development of each one with each, with within itself. Um, so this is so Simon Do here is comparing this uh, um, uh, synchronization signal with uh, with this type of um, internal evolution of, of the monad. So if you had um, um, you know uh, absolutely synchronized oscillators, then the synchronization signal would would not transmit any information. Um, you know, because they they would not need to um, you wouldn't need to receive any information in order to maintain the synchronization. They would just be synchronized through their internal um, uh, progress or or workings. I guess you could say. So, um, in information is not form. <laughs> it's not full formed. Sorry, I'm just trying to figure out that this is this is kind of there's a lot in this paragraph too. So it's not a form or a collection of forms, but it's a variability of forms. Right. So the way I understand it is that so in this example of the the oscillators being synchronized, um, so each oscillator has its own form, like a, it has a, a certain frequency that it's uh, that's producing. Um, but it also receives information from the other oscillator, um, and uh, and that it's a, a variation on the existing form that um, makes them line up with each other. So it, it receives um, a signal from the other oscillator, um, which is either you know slightly in advance or slightly behind its its own phase, and then they they um, they become they resonate with each other to um, uh, to synchronize with each other. I think uh, the distinction uh, is a ring similar to uh, what Simon Don does in his other book with uh, mode and modulation. I think form and uh, information can be in a certain way mapped onto the distinction between mode and modulation. Uh, could you maybe um, explain a little bit more what that distinction between mode and modulation uh, consists in? Yeah, sorry, I was remembering. It's not mold, mold, I should say. Uh, yeah, right, mold, right, okay, now I remember, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, his example was this uh, brick work, right? Uh, a static form is based on a mold, whereas modulation has the capacity to be changed, and uh, it is the very variation uh, of form. I think form is more static, like rigid, uh, and the way in the uh, next paragraph, he will he's going to distribute them according to the living and the physical might also uh, go to confirm this. Right, yeah, uh, that, that's a useful um, 
uh, comparison, I think. Um, so the way I remember it, uh, I mean, it's been a little while since I read this, but uh, as I remember it, so he, he points to the uh, example of a brick as a, so an example of a mold. Um, so you have like a, you know, a wooden um, frame or whatever it is that you fill with clay. And then um, uh, it imposes a form onto the clay as, as the clay dries. Uh, so it's a static form. Um, and then uh, modulation is uh, the same type of process, but rather than with a static um, matter, it's with a stream, uh, whether it's a stream of air or, or water or electricity, whatever it is. Um, so it's a, a constantly um, uh, changing uh, form that is imposed onto the stream. So you can um, change the, the, whether it's the pressure or, or the, the speed or whatever it is, um, uh, you, you can modulate it by changing it uh, continuously. Um, so yeah, that, that's the comparison between the, the mold and the modulation. Um, and so I think it's a similar type of distinction that he's, he's bringing up here with form as something static and then information as the variation or the, the continuous modulation of that form. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. That's, thank you, thank you for going over it because I would have been somewhat confused if you hadn't hadn't expanded on that. It seems like it. There's a lot, a lot going on with that, that delineation. Because especially when it's he he still still wants to maintain that form is a priori. So this this is kind of like a um, I don't I don't want to say synthetic, but you know it's it's a kind of complex a priori determination where information determines forms which are both a priori, right? Or I'm assuming that that much that, that because infor information would have to be one of the bases for the form, that it would also have to be a priori as well. So um, there's kind of like a, a double or dual level a priori here where information and form are in contrast, I'm not sure exactly what what pure chance has to do with it, though, because I'm kind of like um, I'm not sure how I feel about pure chance to begin with. But as far as form and information, that makes a lot of sense. All right, I think the the role of pure chance here is as a, a contrast to um, this sort of structured information that he's pointing to. So. Um, uh the the notion of information that he wants to work with is the idea of um this modulation of a form or um uh this continuous variation on uh, a pre-existing form um but then so he wants to contrast that with the idea of uh, a pure chance um that would not have any relation to a pre-existing form um so you would have like a um so insofar as you're transmitting a message that is just pure chance, you know, random, a random sequence of numbers or whatever it is, then um, the you can't, um, uh, sorry, the the information being transmitted is not related to a pre-existing form, so it's not predictable in that sense, and you can't um, uh, filter out noise, for example, in the same way that you can with a predictable message. Okay, so it kind of functions as like a zero sort of to kind of contextualize the, the form information is both being like positive in a contrast to pure chance, which would just be um, a kind of absence of in, absence of all form or information, so to speak. 
Right. It's um, well, it, it's kind of like you have a zero on both sides. Like you have a zero information transmitted if it's just pure chance. Um, um, there's no, uh, um, yeah, there's no information transmitted. Um, and then also, if, you, if the message is 100% predictable, if there's no variation, then you're also not transmitting any information. It's only between those two extremes that you actually transmit information. Um, so it has to have the message has to have some degree of structure, uh, some relation to a pre-existing form, but also has to be not entirely predictable. So there's a certain amount of variation in the message. Um, so it's only insofar as something is uh, uh, has both structure and variation that it um, that it actually uh, constitutes information. All right, so I think we can go on to the next paragraph then, if someone would like to volunteer. Okay, no volunteers, so I'll read. However, to this day, the new phase of the philosophy of technics, which followed after the phase that was, that was contemporary with thermodynamics and energetics, has not made a clear distinction between form and information. There is, in effect, an important gap between the living thing and the machine, and consequently between man and machine, which comes from the fact that the living thing needs information while the machine essentially uses forms and so is, and is, so to speak, constituted with forms. Philosophical thought will not be able to grasp the sense of coupling between man and machine unless it manages to elucidate the true relation that exists between form and information. The living transforms information into forms, the a posteriori into a priori. But this a priori is always oriented towards the reception of information to be interpreted. The machine, on the contrary, has been built according to a certain number of schemas and it functions in a determinate way. Its technicity, its functional concretization at the level of the element are determinations of forms. Um, I'll just continue in the next uh, short paragraph here as well. The human individual thus appears as having to convert the forms deposited into machines into information. The operation of machine, the operating of machines does not give rise to information, but is simply an assemblage and a modification of forms. The functioning of a machine has no sense and cannot give rise to true information signals from a, for another machine. A living being is required as mediator in order to interpret a given functioning in terms of information and in order to convert it into the forms of another for another machine. Man understands machines. For there, for there to be a true technical ensemble, man has to play a functional role between machines rather than above them. It is man who discovers significations. Signification is the meaning, sens, that an event takes on with respect to already existing forms. Signification is what makes an event have value as information. Um, so yeah, so he's, uh, um, he's introducing this contrast between um, the machine and the living being uh, with respect to their relation to information and form. So um, a machine, uh, so how he describes it, a machine um, uh, has to do with forms. It operates um, um, at the level of forms. And then the living being operates at the level of information. Um, so it's uh, something that that integrates information into a form, but it, it's not uh, purely form, uh, purely at the level of form. Um, so I think, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely convinced by this contrast um, between the machine and the living being. Um, I'm not sure what everyone else thinks about that. Um, I think it's interesting that uh, the idea that the living being is the only one that has that is disposed towards information. Or is that is that the delineation? Is that 
the information always requires a correlated living living being right yeah that's that's the the distinction that he's making here um so information in the the true sense in the sense that he's developed uh in the previous couple paragraphs always requires a living being to uh to interpret it um uh whereas machines only operate on forms i think uh, i i mean it, it it seems like if you wanted to just say like well information is just the the thing that defined as such you know defined as that which um requires um a biological correlate it doesn't seem like that um is is super problematic by itself i mean it does seem like when people talk about <clears throat> information let's say like sensors if you have a like a sensor array or something like that you would say you might say like oh well it picks picks up information but I think it, it is kind of clarifying to kind of ground that information and in the relevance to the the life form which is going to be informed by the information. It's not as though the sensors themselves are informed in that in that sense of usage of them. So I, I can understand that that the use of use of information in this way. And, and also, it doesn't seem like you lose anything valuable by excluding um non-biological things as um receivers of of information because kind of i guess i mean i i can't see any case in which just talking about something as like a form would be insuff insufficient for this kind of purpose like if if like a sensor were to pick up some data we ha we already have the kind of discourse of picking up so we don't really need to to act as though the sensors are actually themselves informed by what they pick up, right? Yeah, I guess um, the the aspect that I'm um, I guess concerned by or, or that uh, that doesn't really work for me is that um, living beings are themselves um, uh, you know made up of of well what you can call sensors or or you know machine-like elements um you know you can think of uh um you know cones and rods in, in the eye of a of a well of a human or, or other um vertebrates um or um you know other types of receptive um um apparatus that different animals have or even plants um um so uh though like uh, a rod or a cone cell it, it looks a lot like a machine um, in terms of you know the way it functions um, but somehow the grouping or, or the connection between these sort of machine like um, uh, parts um, is supposed to give rise to something that is uh, qualitatively different from machine functioning it's supposed to give rise to this um, information receiving living being um, and so that's I guess there's no what I what I'm um, not convinced by is the fact that he doesn't give an account of how that uh, qualitative distinction uh, comes about. Like, at what point does a collection of machine-like uh, receptive uh, um, you know, organs or or elements in a living being uh, become uh, sort of qualitatively distinct and become a living being that can receive information? I would think it would be something like the moment where the 
living being constitutes a milieu for itself or something, or it's like a kind of, it's like a contraction of all the other uh, of those forms into some kind of, like a kind of membrane or gestalt of their, their operation in a milieu. Yeah, I think that that would probably work. Um, so yeah, it would have to go back to um, some of the, the concepts developed in the other book about individuation. So a living being um, uh, individuates itself by um, uh, you know, separating itself from the uh, the milieu. Like it's a, you have a pre-individual um, uh, being that is uh, separated out into an individual being and then the milieu surrounding it. Um, yeah, so something like that. I think he would need to have an account like that, um, but it, it's not it's not developed here. Like I, I think maybe you, you probably could um, develop something like that out of you know some of his other works, but it's not specified here. This um, what exactly what exactly it is that um, that makes a living being capable of receiving information. It, to me, it's a, it reminds me of a, a kind of ongoing conversation in artificial intelligence where, you know, people, uh, people sort of the, the critique, uh, the critique of the field usually pivots around the, the idea that the machine is just finding, it's finding informational patterns, it's basically combining forms, but it can't give, like it, it doesn't possess intelligence in the sense that it has, uh, it, you require the human being in the circuit to kind of give it give it give meaning at the end of the day right that you that you just you won't be able to you won't be able to just feed a computer endless levels of endless amounts of data and have it and have it sort of seek out novel patterns that 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 just can never that can never sort of culminate in in general intelligence because it's just it's just forms without this sort of additional layer of uh of meaningfulness i think i think that the the keyword in what you just said is novel because that's what what would be the kind of inform informativeness that would be restricted to the person who distinguishes it as being novel, you know, it, and that's why I'm kind of like, as long as, as long as there's some relevant claim that can be made, then it, it seems like, like the, the mechanical kind of aspects of life that seem to be problematic can be kind of pushed aside from the problem for the time being. I mean, although it is it is kind of telling that he doesn't address them uh, specifically since these would be the kind of questions that would be typically kind of phenomenological, you know, having to do with uh, perception and whether per perception is mechanical or or uh, agentive, et cetera. And, th and these are questions that even even at, though he brings up uh, Leibniz's uh, monads, um, he doesn't really even address address them to the depth that Leibniz does with his kind of talk about like the, the mechanical aspects of perception. So I think that he did like maybe, I mean, we'll see uh, what if he goes more into it here in this text or in other places, but um, it does seem like this is a, a part of the equation which he almost kind of wants us to kind of tacitly assume um, that there is this kind of life um, independence of life, which operates in this executive way. So, I mean, of, of course, this is, this is sidestepping all the debates about in the philosophy of mind completely. So, but I mean, in, in some ways I kind of in, like that method because you can, um, 
because I don't really like to go into a lot of debates about philosophy of mind anyway, usually. And when it comes to perception and whether there like is some agentive role in like the emergence of the consciousness or something that is more so than just the aggregate of perceptive impulses or something like that. I think that this is just going to be kind of all pointing back to the same kind of question of consciousness kind of simpliciter. So I, I'm I'm not really as worried about it. It seems like you can get a lot of a lot of stuff as long as you assume, which I think most people do, that there is some relevant criteria for life versus mechanized processes. Then I think that you can take that kind of biological locality and make the make the kind of arguments that he does without really having to pinpoint like where where the line is, so to speak, like. Do your eyes, are your eyes informed, you know, is, is uh, some, some relation between your eyes and, and your executive uh, function, is that what is informed about this? Like, of course, this is not what, I don't think it would be even possible for him to go into this successfully, because that's such an obscure issue, um, especially, I mean, a little less so now, but it's still very obscure. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, so, I mean, he does sort of sidestep an issue here, but I think, um, yeah, it's more it's more that he just sort of passes through it quickly, I guess you could say, um, rather than sort of developing it um, in in more detail. He just sort of um, makes sort of makes some assumptions and, and then uh, hopes that the reader will grant them with him. Um, but I think I think you're right to um, also, when you pointed towards novelty um, as being important there, um, um, so what, I, what I'm thinking of is uh, with the example of artificial intelligence, like um, the way that chess playing computers work, for example, um, involves basically uh, um, calculating all uh, you know tons of different possible uh, moves, like. Uh, going through different possible moves and, and saying like does this you know, which of these 10,000 or 100,000 or whatever possible moves um, which of these ends up with the best position um, whereas human uh, chess playing obviously like no no person is able to um, you know calculate 100,000 moves and see which one is the best uh, the best position uh, so it relies on more uh, more of a conceptual grasp of, you know, the structure of the positions on the board, and uh, um, maybe more uh, uh, simplification. Like you, you just sort of perceive blocks of positions uh, rather than calculating moves and things like that. Um, so, uh, but at the same time, the the um, uh, chess playing computers are are able to beat you know the best chess players now um, and you know uh, other games like Go as well um, and so some of the like this uh, sort of purely calculative uh, or machine based um, processing is able to surpass human uh, or, or you know the living being in certain respects um, you know in, in you know specialized applications um, so and I wonder if that's like, I, I suspect that's something that he didn't have in mind when he was writing this, that he, he wouldn't have thought that would be possible. But anyway, that's a little bit of a, a tangent or a, um, off, off of the uh, main line of what he's arguing here. So maybe we should uh, 
get back to the text and uh, someone can read the next um, page long paragraph. I'm mic'd up and ready to, go, ready to roll now. Okay, here we go. Um, this function is complementary with the function of the invention of technical individuals. Man, interpreter of machines, is also the one who has, on the basis of his schemas, founded the rigid forms that enable the, uh, the machine to function. The machine is a deposited fixed human gesture that has become a stereotypy and the power to restart. A rocker switch with two fixed states uh, has been thought out and built once. Man represented its functioning to himself a limited number of times, and now the rocker performs its equilibrium reversing operation indefinitely. It perpetuates the human operation that constituted it in a determinate activity. A certain transition has been carried out through construction from a mental to a physical functioning. There is a veritable and profound dynamic analogy between the process through which man thought up the rocker switch and the physical process of functioning of this rocker switch once built. A relation of isodynamism exists between man who invents and the machine that functions, which is more essential than the gestalt psychologists had imagined in order to explain perception, calling it an isomorphism. The analogical relation between machine and man is not at the level of corporeal functioning. The machine neither nourishes itself, nor perceives, nor rests, and cybernetic literature falsely exploits the appearance of analogy. The true analogical relation is in fact between the mental functioning of man and the physical functioning of the machine. The two, these two ways of functioning are not parallel within everyday life, but rather within invention. To invent is to make one's thought function as a machine might function, neither according to causality, which is too fragmentary, nor according to finality, which is too unitary, but according to the dynamism of lived functioning, grasped because it is produced, accompanied in its genesis. The machine is a being that functions. Its mechanisms concretize a coherent dynamism that once existed in thought, which were that thought. During invention, the dynamism of thought converted itself into functioning forms. Inversely, the machine in functioning is subject to our subject to or produces a certain number of variations around the fundamental rhythms of its functioning arising from its definite forms. These variations are what are are what these variations are what are significant, and they are significant with respect to the archetype of functioning, which is that of thought in the process of invention. One has to have invented or reinvented the machine if the machine's variations of functioning are to become information. The noise of an engine in itself does not have value as information. It takes on this value through its variation in rhythm, the changing of its frequency or tone, the alteration of its transients, which translate a modification of its functioning with respect to the functioning that results from invention. When the correlation that exists between machines is purely causal, then it isn't necessary for a human being to intervene as the mutual interpreter of the machines. But this role is necessary when the machines comprise regulation. A machine that has regulation is in effect a machine that harbors a certain margin of indeterminacy in its functioning. It can, for instance, go fast or slow. Henceforth, its variations in speed become significant and can take into account what is happening outside the machine in the technical ensemble. The more, automized, the more automatized the machines are, the more restricted its possible variations in speed are. They can thus go unperceived, but what is happening here is in fact what is happening for a very stable oscillator that is synchronized by another even more stable oscillator. The oscillator can continue to receive information as long as it is not, as it is not rigorously stable. And despite the fact that the margin of indeterminacy of its functioning is reduced, 
synchronization still has meaning, sens, inside this margin of indeterminacy. The synchronization pulse has meaning when it intervenes as a very slight variation on this temporal form of recurrence of the states of functioning. In the same way, the reduction of the indeterminacy of its functioning does not isolate the machines from one another. It renders the variation in signification, which has value as information, more rigorous and refined. But it is always with respect to the essential schemas of the invention of the machine that, this, that these variations have a sense. Right, so this is um, bringing back some concepts that were introduced in the first part, um, having to do with concretiz concretization. Um, so he, he had pointed out earlier that um, um, the process of invention of a, a concrete technical object um, is dependent on the functioning of a living being. Um, so because, because a concrete technical object is its own cause it brings about um the it brings about by its functioning it brings about the conditions that are necessary for that functioning um so uh it, it can't you can't um sort of produce it through just a linear causation because in order for it to actually function it has to already be functioning um so in order to represent this type of uh functioning uh, you have to rely on the uh, the existence of a living being. So it, it's only through imagination, only in uh, invention can only work through this process of imagination within a living being that uses the living being's uh, sort of um, recursive character to uh, to model the functioning of the concrete technical object that uh, produces its own conditions. Um, so he's he's bringing that concept back here. So I think this maybe uh, answers part of what I was um, uh, worried about with the earlier section about what property exactly of a living being he's, he's drawing on. So I think it's this recursive character of the living being that he's uh, pointing to. I think uh, oftentimes we, we apply the kind of category of functioning or function to to humans and what humans do. Like we think of uh, um, certain life as having some kind of function. Um, of course, there's a long philosophical history of this. And as well, there's a lot kind of an ordinary usage of kind of like um, whether we think that um, we can, we can talk about human actions is whether they function to serve some kind of purpose. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure if it's, if it's entirely out of the question to think of humans as sub subject to the same kind of functional conditions that functions in general would be and machines would be as well. Like there seems to be some kind of basis in which there's a, a functional symmetry between human action and machine process. And this is, of course, what the cyberneticists kind of point at and call like the isom isomorphism. Uh, and that's where the isomorphic kind of structure that um, is really important in, in things like neural nets and stuff like that and work in philosophy of mind and um, 
and and theories theories of thinking that are more related to computation so like computational theories of thought that in which like thought is seen as kind of coextensive with computation in some model i think it's interesting that this language is is seen as already kind of like fulfilling a certain kind of function like when you find this kind of structural symmetry then you're you're worried about something which is already kind of beg- begging the question or assuming the consequent rather about about whether it it's functionally closed so you're you're already kind of by definition when you when you go down this route um kind of uh eliminating the talk of 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 like purpose that we specifically bestow on collections of functions or something which i guess is supposed to be this kind of recursive aspect. Um, I don't know. What did any of that make any sense? Yeah, I think uh, I think I understood. Um, uh, what I would say is I would want to make a distinction between function and functioning. Um, so function is uh, like as you were pointing pointing out. So function, you can you can look at. Um, um, an organ or a behavior of an animal, for example, and ask what the function is. Um, so it has a sort of teleo- teleo- te- sorry, teleological um, um, meaning. Um, so you can say that you know the heart, the function of the heart is to pump blood or or whatever it is. So it's it's a in order to um, type of uh, concept. Um, but then the functioning, I would say, is a non teleological. Um, concept. So you would say the functioning of the heart is that it, um, you know, muscles contract, for example, something like that. Um, so that would just be uh, some, I guess you could also use the word operation or, or action or something like that, um, uh, workings maybe. Um, so I think um, what he wants to, uh, so the reason he's criticizing this, uh, this notion of isomorphism is um because it doesn't make that distinction i think um so it it's uh actually yeah i'm not sure i'm i'm as i'm saying this i'm i'm not sure if i'm right or not but um he so he's criticizing this notion of isomorphism because it doesn't uh um it it gives the wrong analogies so it, it it tries to make an analogy between the the functioning of a of a human um, organ or, or or whatever it is, and a, a machine process, um, whereas he wants to present the actual analogy as being between human thought and the machine uh, functioning. Um, so it's an isodynamism rather than an isomorphism. Um, so actually, yeah. So I'm not sure if uh, that. Um, distinction between function and functioning is actually useful there, but that, um, that's the uh, sort of basis of, of what I how I, I understand what he's um, criticizing in cybernetics. And that was helpful for me for sure. It's interesting. I'm still I'm still trying to figure out all of the the ways to talk about cybernetics um, and isomorphism is is famously kind of. It's very often used to sh- to show a structural a structural relation uh, between things that is 
like uh, approaches identity in a peculiar way <laughs> in a way that's it's very um kind of an indisputable way to establish a structural relation i suppose i suppose that's the best way i can describe what how isomorphism is used but it's uh in some in some cybernetics circles it's kind of gotten like a cult following i know people that refer to it as isomorpheus <laughs> like isomorpheus kind of has shown you the way to identity through through this structural relation principle or something like that. But anyway, I should go on and read before I get too far into that. Um, if there's no objections. Uh, that works for me. Go for it. All right. The notion of a perfect automaton is a notion that is obtained by confronting a limit. And so it harbors something contradictory. The automaton is supposed to be a machine so perfect that the margin of indeterminacy of its functioning would be null but which would be able nevertheless to receive, interpret, or emit information. And yet, if the margin of indeterminacy of functioning is null, then there is no longer any possible variation. The functioning repeats indefinitely, and consequently, this iteration has no signification. Information is maintained throughout autom automatization only because the fineness of the signals increases with the reduction of the margin of indeterminacy, which means that the signals conserve their signifying value even if this margin of indeterminacy becomes extremely narrow. If, for instance, oscillators are stable to about a thousandth in frequency variation, then the synchronization pulses whose possible phase rotation would vary over time at about 10%, or which would have no steep incline and variable duration, would only have a low informational value for synchronization. To, synchroni to synchronize oscillators that are already very stable, Tiny, perfectly cut pulses are used, whose phase angle is rigorously constant. Information is all the more significant, or rather, a signal has all the more informational value as it acts in concordance with an autonomous form of the individual who receives it. Hence, when the natural frequency of an oscillator that is to be synchronized is far from the frequency of synchronization pulses, synchronization does not occur. On the contrary, synchronization occurs for signals that become weaker as autonomous frequency and the pulse frequency get closer to each other. Nevertheless, this relation must be more carefully interpreted. For recurrent pulses to synchronize an oscillator, these pulses must arrive at a critical period of functioning, namely the one which immediately precedes the reversal of equilibrium, which is to say just before the beginning of a phase. The synchronizing pulse arrives as a very small additional quantity of energy that accelerates the passage to the next phase at a moment in which this passage was not yet fully accomplished. The pulse triggers. It is for the reason that the greatest fineness of the synchronization, the highest sensitivity, is obtained when the autonomous frequency would be ever so slightly lower than the synchronizing frequency. With respect to this form of recurrence, the pulses with a very slight advance take on a meaning, sense, and carry information. The moment in which the oscillator's equilibrium will be reversed is that in which a metastable state is created with an accumulation of energy. Right, so this is another one of these bits where he gives like a lot of technical detail um, about like 1950s uh, electronics that is a little bit um, obscure, um, I think, to readers today, or people that are not like, I don't know, amateur electricians or something. Um, 
but uh, I think one of the key points is is right at the beginning of the paragraph where he's talking about um, the idea of uh, a perfect automaton or um, something like absolute automation. Um, and he so he points out that this is a, a sort of a contradictory idea because on the one hand it has to be something that will um, that will function um, uh, like automatically without any uh, uh, input. It will just repeat its functioning indefinitely. But then on the other hand, it also has to be able to receive information. Um, you know, you send in the specification for what it's supposed to produce or, or whatever it is. Um, so it has to, for the first uh, for the first condition to be true, it has to have like a, um, the margin of indeterminacy has to be reduced as much as possible. It has to just reproduce the same operations over and over again uh, without variation. But then for the second condition to be true, it has to have a, a wider um, margin of indeterminacy so that they can receive instructions and, and vary what it produces. So it's a, a contradictory concept. You know, I wonder um, if you have like a, recur a recurrent kind of signal processing si system kind of, of of the way that he kind of is describing here. Um, it seems that um, this isn't the sort of contradiction that would be uh, like a fatal contradiction. Like it doesn't seem like this would be the sort of thing that would prevent um, uh, an automaton from 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 functioning under like normal expected conditions. But he kind of imposes a utopian standard of the perfect machine, so to speak, where there will be no indeterminacy of functioning. Um, but I mean, if, if what, what, what I would kind of be inclined to believe is this indeterminacy could be part of the signaling function. So, um, like there, there could be kind of an algorithmically mediated, uh, aspect. So such that there would be, um, a determinate amount of difference, a determinate amount of indeterminacy or a determ determinate aspect of indeterminacy, like using something uh, even like a kind of random number generator, for instance, whereas this would be a way that introduces indeterminacy into the functioning by by necessity. It doesn't seem to me to make the, the functioning of the machine any less perfect in a sense, as long as this indeterminacy is determinately contained, so to speak. I don't know. I'm I'm well out of my depth here. So yeah, I think um what I would say here is um so when when he the reason he's he's bringing up this notion of this perfect automaton is because this is like a, a sort of um a cultural figure, uh, especially in the time he's writing in, in the fifties. Um and this idea that you know robots are going to take over the factories and um um, you know, displaced human workers and, and so on. Um, um, and and he, he brought this up in the introduction as well, this idea of, uh, you know, automation as, as replacing the human being. Um, and, uh, you know, to some extent that has happened, like there has been automation, of course, within factories, you know, especially uh, when you look at car, uh, car manufacturing, for example, um, uh, has, um, you know, a, a pretty... Um, high level of automation compared to, you know, in the 1950s. Um, but, um, 
I think, um, but yeah, but even though there is this automation within that production, it doesn't mean that there's no human input that you can just, um, you know, uh, sort of send the blueprints to the into the computer and, and have a, a fixed, uh, you know, a complete car come out the other end without any human input, um, um, which is sort of the, the representation that was, um, um, you know, sort of circulating at the time that uh, that he was writing. Um, but I think another another aspect or, or maybe a further development of what he's arguing here is that in order to produce a factory that could or, or like a, a, a manufacturing process that could autonomously produce a car, for example, you would have to create effectively just a, a, an artificial living being like it would have to be um, an entity that can respond to its environment in an adaptive way. Um, and you know, come up with make decisions and, and come up with new um, uh, solutions to problems and so on. Like it, it would, it would effectively be just a living being. So um, um, even though it has an artificial origin, it, it would, in terms of its actual working or, or its its function, it would be it would be a living being. Uh, and yeah, so th this idea of a, an automaton that would be, on the one hand, um, uh, sort of uh, rigidly obedient, like it would not have it, uh, a will of its own. Um, and then on the other hand, it would be perfectly adaptable to the environment and whatever sort of uh, obstacles come up in production. Um, th these two, um, these two criteria are, are self-contradict or contradict each other. Um, and I think that's what he's pointing to there. I just, uh, I wonder about um, the, t the types of things in which processes have have effectively removed the human the human from the equation and whether these would would fall uh within within what he is categorically rejecting here or if these would just somehow not fit the criteria like if i mean uh, in a sense of course in in a lot of factory work there is there is a necessity of the human operators but it's not beyond uh plausibility that we have completely humanless factories and in fact like these things have been created and in some contexts have operated of course you could say oh well you know the human had to had to be the cause the original cause you know of all these processes but i think what what really is going on with the idea of the autonomous automaton is that at some point it it is it is um self-sustaining entirely so I don't think it necessarily speaks to kind of like the causal, the the original origins. Um, of course, like uh, if something could break down and need maintenance, and then you know something somebody would be needed, you know, theoretically. But if you had a kind of uh, assist maintenance systems that were also automatized, you could theoretically mitigate that without the need for human interaction, and. Uh, I just I just wonder how how he um, how the kind of like contemporary more contemporary developments in in the complexity of automation would would you know change what what the way his argument is working out like and also if if he is if there is something that like if if it got so complex then it would constitute life this would seem to be in antagonism to his his um, criteria, which seems to necessitate a external kind of life 
form to make the kind of executive decisions related to a functioning technical object. So it's kind of interesting to see, um, because I still think that his arguments are correct, but for the and for the most part, yes, that's the term. I still think his claims are are plausible for the most part, but it's just interesting to see kind of how he kind of um, is kind of uh, stuck in this mid twentieth century kind of stasis when it comes to technology. And anyway, I should stop there. Yeah, um, you want to, Leif Mason, you want to um, explain a little bit what these uh, self-healing systems and how they work um, and how it relates to this? Yeah, just the idea that, you know, that uh, whatever, you know, if we're, if, we're, if we're sort of in pursuit of the perfect automaton, then, then you know, part of, the, uh, part, part of its materialization would involve, as 61 was saying, sort of being able to if something goes, if you know, if something breaks down, then you have sort of custodial processes that can come in and actually investigate what's wrong with the system and then automatically kind of restart systems or restart services as necessary to kind of get the get the overall system back up and going. And it's all autonomous, right? Like it's, it's monitored at an executive level by an ensemble style manager, but then it's just done by systems impacting other systems. Right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, and um, I think uh 61 to your point about um the relation or or what what simondon might say about some of these automatic systems and you know you know self-healing systems and so on um i think uh i mean the way i understand it i think he my guess is that he probably did not expect something like this to be possible um like you know the words um a sort of famous or infamous book from I think the 1980s about what computers can't do. It's called What Computers Can't Do by uh, Hubert Dreyfus. Um, and then one of the examples that he gives is you know beating humans at chess, which of course you know 10, 15 years later uh, in the 90s um, you know happened that uh, you know the Deep Blue was able to beat um, uh, Kasparov. Um, so I think. Um, Automation or or uh, machines in general have uh, probably surpassed what people, you know, even very technically literate people would have expected in the 1950s uh, would be possible. Um, but I think um, maybe at a, a more fundamental level, I think I think he would be able to, or his his thoughts or his um, his work would be able. You could extend it to something like an artificially living organism or artificially living being. Um, and I think I think that's what this um, criticism of the idea of the automaton, I think that's what it points towards, is that anything like even this self-healing system or something like that, um, uh, that can break down itself, like the, the um, repair mechanism can break down. Um, you know, at some point it requires outside intervention, but um, Insofar as it uh, approaches more and more towards something that doesn't require outside intervention, then it is becoming more and more like a living being. Um, um, so it's, uh, um, I think, yeah, I think we can extend the concept that he's introducing to the idea that um, uh, technical objects can, uh, could eventually become a, a form of artificial life. 
um, I think that I don't think I would be sort of doing violence to uh, to his thought or or sort of uh, something that he would necessarily reject. I wonder though if if he could still maintain the life life bestowing criteria on the technical milieu. Um, I guess the the necessary that life is the necessary bestower on the technical milieu. I didn't really that was not grammatically correct, but you know what I mean. I'm I'm not sure if he could. Um, maintain this criteria if you were to kind of seed to technical objects their own life and thus their own uh, powers to grant technical milieus unless there was like an, um, well, because there would be a kind of recursion problem. So you would kind of have to accept kind of subdomains of technical objects where certain ones because of a certain amount of complexity are sufficient to be considered life, whereas like other ones are not. But it doesn't seem like this really mirrors the way that we talk about life for the most part. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know if I don't know if he would want to to do that because at that point he would just be talking about life as though it was a certain degree of complexity. I feel like, and it kind of takes the uh, the categorical distinctness out of his argument, I suppose. And you'd also have to you'd also have to account for how computer science and how like that his account of signification I think is very different from the kind of kind of uh, conceptual commitments that need to be made in computer science to talk about intelligence in terms of what semiosis is and what signification is like that would be so that like there would be a kind of um, there might like in, in, similar, in a similar way that you're describing there would be kind of an internal an internal contradiction or conflict between uh, you know that would sort of render the the idea of artificial life. Kind of um yeah somehow contradictory in the overall over of what he's doing basically not maybe you know there's there's probably an argument to be made about about saying something interesting about artificial life in the context of this book but again if you start to import other ideas from the individuation books like we were talking about earlier then i think it gets it would get a lot more complicated yeah um i think that's fair um and i think um i think it's a good um example of the ways that uh you know, technical developments and, and philosophical developments can sort of uh, interact with each other um, because this is a, you know, the possibility of artificial life and artificial intelligence is something that is much more concrete today or much more realistic today than it was in, in 1958 or, or in the 1950s when he's writing this book. Um, so in his time, he can sort of dismiss it as, um, you know, he, he, it's, he just gives a, a pretty quick arguments to say that this is not really a, a realistic possibility. Um, um, whereas today you would need to be much more, I think, um, you'd have to look at it in much more detail and, and try to understand exactly what it is that makes uh, artificial life possible or not. Um, it, would, it would have to be much more uh, developed than, than what he was able to do in the, in the 1950s. There's definitely a kind of um... There's two kind of two ways to make make the the argument. You can kind of make it categorically and say there's just two separate domains, and in that case, no further development or evidence would be sufficient to adjust the, that type of claim. But then the other claim, which is kind of one that he ends up making a lot, is kind of based on a lot of um, implied properties or empirical results of com computing versus thinking um, or life versus um, tech, technical information, life information versus technical information, or I guess he, was, he would call it just information versus form. 
we we gotta cover uh, we gotta cover a whole another section after this, right? Yeah, I don't think we're gonna get through the the last section uh, today. Um, we're we're um, we've we've been having more discussion today, which is fine. Um, you know, some days we we sort of power through and just read and don't have much discussion, and some days we have more. Um, and I think uh, you know, like I think I said this last time too. I mean, the discussion is is sort of what makes this group worthwhile, right? Um, we could each read the text on our own. Uh, but it's the discussion that gives us more than just reading it um, ourselves. So I think that's good. I, I don't have any problem with, uh, you know, bringing up interesting points or, or questions about, you know, how this relates to uh, contemporary developments in technology and so on. Uh, I think that's a, a perfectly uh, useful thing to do in this group. I mean, we're not just all automatons after all, right? <laughs> right, exactly. We have, uh, you know, variation on form. We can, we don't have to just follow the, the form as it's uh, specified in the book. We can produce our own variations. Sounds good. And that's a though. Um, I think we can probably go on to the next paragraph if I uh, can find it. Yes, there we go. Um, so I'll, I'll read the next one. Um, uh, it's a short one. So maybe, yeah, I'll read the next two since they seem to be pretty short. Okay. It is this existence of critical phases that explains the difficulty of synchronizing a wave functioning that does not offer an abrupt reversal of states. A sinusoidal oscillator synchronizes less easily than a relaxation oscillator. The margin of indeterminacy is effectively less critical in the functioning of a sinusoidal oscillator. Its functioning can be modified at any moment during the course of its period. In a re relaxation oscillator, on the contrary, indeterminacy is accumulated at each end of the cycle rather than being spread over the whole duration of the cycle. When the equilibrium is reversed, the relaxation oscillator is no longer sensitive to the pulse it receives, but when it is on the tipping point, it is extremely sensitive. The sinusoidal oscillator, on the contrary, is sensitive throughout the phase, but in a mediocre way. The, ex the existence of a margin of indeterminacy in machines must therefore be understood as the existence of a certain number of critical phases of functioning. The machine that can receive information is the one that tempor temporarily localizes its indeterminacy in instances that are sensitive and rich with possibilities. This structure is one of decision, but it is also that of the relay. The machines that can receive information are the ones that localize their indeterminacy. I'll continue here too. Uh, this notion of the localization of decisions within functioning is not absent from books on cybernetics. But what the study lacks is the notion of the reversibility of the reception of information and the emission of information. If a machine presents a functioning with critical phases, such as those of the relaxation oscillator, then it can emit information as well as receive it. A relaxation oscillator thus emits pulses as a result of its discontinuous functioning, which can serve to synchronize another relaxation oscillator. If one couples two relaxation oscillators to each other, these two, two oscillators synchronize in such a way that one cannot say which one synchronizes and which one is synchronized. In fact, they synchronize each other, and the ensemble functions as a single oscillator with a single period that is slightly different from the periods proper to each one of the oscillators. So is he saying that there is some, some sense in which machines can receive information, um, but it seems to be in slight contradiction to the claims he made about sig signifying function, signif signifying function. And is that being something which is reduced to like human, uh, the human domain or the domain of like life? So how how does this kind of dice with that that last 
um, a position on information where information was bound to a human receiver, so to speak. Because this seems to be saying that a machine of this particular type, that which localizes uh, indeterminacy, can receive information in the same way that a human could. Is this different or um, how, how does this make sense? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, it looks like he's using the term information in two different ways in those two different um, sections. So a couple paragraphs earlier, we, we had that, that claim that machines operate with forms and then only uh, a living being can receive information. Um, but I think that um, that had to do with this richer notion of information that he's developed. Um, whereas in this paragraph here, when he says that um, um, right near the bottom of page 153, he says uh, the machines that can receive information are the ones that localize their indeterminacy. I think that would be um, the, the more standard notion of information rather than the one that he's introduced uh, or developed in, in earlier in this section. Um, so that would mean, uh, so this type of information would be, I guess, synonymous with just receiving forms um, rather than uh, the, the more developed notion of information that he introduced earlier. I'm not sure about that though, but I think that's how he, yeah, I think he's using two different notions of information here, which is a little bit confusing. I think like if you were to think about it in terms of like Shannonian information theory, it's like a, it's a sender receiver relationship, right? Where I think the assumption, the kind of conceptual assumption is that the sender uh, is sort of, according to a set of pre-selected messages that are available to both generated by the sender, the sender can send a message to the receiver and the receiver can sort of decode it um, and, and, and understand it as having uh, as, and then the, the like overall, uh, sort of patterns of novelty between them are what constitute information. And I think what he's saying is that, that, that we need to think about the relation more in the sense of a sender can send something and then the receiver can modify, the receiver can modify the, 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 uh, the, like the overall ensemble of messages or something, right? That it's not, it's more of a, a kind of reciprocal relationship than information theory would would sort of have us believe. I mean, that's, that sounds, that's a little bit speculative on my part, but I think that's my, the tone of it, what was being said, put me in mind of that. Right. So I, I think, yeah, I think that helps with uh, understanding these two different uses of, of the term information. So in this passage on 153, when he's talking about machines receiving information, that would just mean uh, receiving a message from a predetermined uh, set of possible messages, you know, whether it's, um, you know, combinations of letters of the alphabet or, or whatever it is. Um, uh, whereas in the earlier section, or, or, or sorry, earlier in this section, um, um, a few paragraphs ago, um, when he's talking about information as something that only living beings can receive, that would be information more in the sense of varying the uh, the set of, of possibilities that is given, um, rather than just receiving a message within that pre-given set of possibilities. I think I think that makes sense, or more sense than uh, the sort of initial reading of the two passages with each other. It's still more sense when you redescribe what I said. <laughs> it's very clear. Okay, in that case, I guess I'll read on since we're a little behind schedule for this section, I guess, even. 
It can appear too simple to oppose open machines and closed machines in the sense that Bergson gives these two adjectives. And yet this difference is real. The existence of a regulation in, in a machine leaves the machine open insofar as it localizes the critical periods and the critical points. In other words, those on the basis of which the energetic channels of the machine can be modified, changing characteristics. The individuation of machine goes hand in hand with this separation of forms and critical elements. A machine can be in relation with the exterior insofar as it possesses critical elements. The existence of these critical points in the machine in turn justifies the presence of man. The rate regime of the machine can be modified by information coming from the outside. A calculating machine is therefore not only, as one generally says, a set ensemble of rocker, rocker switches. It is true that the calculating machine has great number of determinate forms, the forms of the functioning of the series of rocker switches, representing a series of operations of additions. But if the machine consisted in this alone, then it would be useless, because it wouldn't be capable of receiving any information. In fact, it also has what one could call the system of schemas of decisions. Before operating the machine, it has to be programmed. Even with a multivibrator that provides the pulses and the series of rockers that do the adding, there still wouldn't be a calculating machine. It is the existence of a certain degree of indeterminacy that makes calculation possible. The machine contains a set ensemble of selectors and of commutations that are commanded by programming. Even in the simplest case, that of a scale composed of rockers and counting pulses, such as those used after the Geiger and Muller tube, tube counters, there is a degree of indeterminacy in its functioning. The Geiger tube under voltage is in the same state as the relax, relax, relaxation, or sorry, relaxation oscillator at the instant in which it will start a new phase, or as a multivibrator in the instant in which it will switch by itself. The only difference is that this metastable state corresponding to a constant voltage in the Geiger-Muller tube prolongs itself in the tube in a durable way until an additional energy triggers ionization, whereas in the relation oscillator or multivibrator, this state is transitory as a result of the continuation of activity in the resistance circuits and the capacitances external to the electronic tube or thyrotron. Ah, it's always a challenge to uh, read some of these paragraphs. I have no idea what a thyrotron is. Yeah, this is more, more 50s electronic stuff, uh, which it would be great if we had like uh, someone who, who knew um, uh, some of this uh, technical stuff, like an expert on 1950s electronics who could uh, explain some of this stuff to us. But uh, unfortunately, we have to just make do with uh, what we have. We'll do that, and when we do the um, the Simone reading group revisited, you know, years from now, yeah. we'll go back and yeah, we'll have to uh, like recruit an engineer or something to uh, to come join our group, or maybe we'll all have uh, developed that that knowledge by then, just by by incidents or um, serendipity. I'm, my interest is peaked with the Thyrotron because apparently it was used in the original jukeboxes. So that's pretty cool. Interesting. I wonder what it is. I guess I, I can go on with some more of this cool 50s technology talk. If uh, there's more, no more Thyrotron comments. Uh, maybe just before we go on to the next paragraph, we can just 
um, pause a little bit on this distinction between open and closed machines, um, which uh, so he he um, he sort of qualifies that distinction, but he does think it's a, a useful one to make. Um, and um, it seems like what he's pointing to here is the the capacity of uh, uh, or the or the existence of programmable machines. So you know, computers, of course, being the the sort of prime example. So a, a computer has a sort of general function, and then it uh, you can uh, input a program to give it more specific functioning uh, um, in a specific situation, and then you can change the program for a different situation. Uh, whereas um, something more um, uh, specific would have only one specific function, uh, whether it's like a, I don't know, some sort of um, uh, automatic machine for for uh, in a factory or something like that. It might have only one specific function that can't be changed without sort of redesigning the whole machine. So that I think that's the distinction between the open and closed machine that he's pointing to in here. That's a, that's a useful distinction to make. I was kind of wondering about the, the types of machines which would have to be programmed to function versus the other ones. And it makes sense that, that, that that's what he was talking about with the distinction between um, open and closed machines. Um, although it's interesting that he, he quotes Bergson on, uh, on the two sources of morality and religion in relation to open machines and closed machines. So I'll have to uh, keep that Bergson text in mind. Yeah, as far as I remember, uh, Belkson is, is talking about open and closed societies, not open and closed machines. But uh, he, um, uh, Simon Don is sort of drawing on that same distinction, but using it for machines instead, uh, which is interesting, uh, an interesting um, sort of uh, transition from one set of concepts to another. Yeah, maybe we can uh, go on to the next uh, paragraph. Uh, we don't, I don't think, yeah, I, we probably won't finish the whole section today, but that's okay. Uh, the next section is short, so we'll have uh, um, a, a little bit of this section and then the rest of the next section for next time. Sounds good. Um, here, I'll, I'll continue reading, I suppose. Uh, this margin of indeterminacy can be found in all the varying types of devices that can transmit information. A continuous relay such as a thermoelectron electron electronic, thermoelectronic or crystalline triode can transmit information because the existence of potential energy defined at the limits of the supply circuit is not enough for the determining for determining the quantity of effective and actual energy that is sent into the outlet circuit. This open relation of possibility in the actualization of an energy is closed only by way of the additional condition of the arrival of information onto the controller. A continuous relay can be defined as a transducer in other words, as resistance that can be modulated by an information that is external to the potential energy and to the actual energy. This resistance can be modulated by information that is external to both the potential energy and the real energy. And still the notion of resistance that can be modulated is too vague and inadequate. If this resistance was effectively a true resistance, it would belong to the domain of actualization of the potential energy. Yet in a perfect transducer, no energy is actualized, nor is any energy put in reserve. The transducer belongs neither to the domain of potential energy, nor to the domain of actual energy. It is truly the mediator between the, these two domains, but it is neither a domain of the accumulation of energy, nor a domain of the actualization. 
It is a margin of indeterminacy between these two domains, that which brings potential energy to its actualization. It is during the course of this passage from potential to actual that information comes into play. Information is the condition of actualization. Yeah, there's a little bit of a uh, translation issue. Um, that, that bit where you, uh, you sort of stumbled, where it seems to say the same thing twice. There's a little bit of a, a translation issue there. Um, let me just find it in the French. Um, uh, right, so it says, so in English, it says, um, uh, a continuous relay can be defined as a transducer, in other words, as a resistance that can be modulated by information that is external to the potential energy and to the actual energy. Um, in French, well, or how I would translate the French is, um, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, we, uh, we can define a continuous relay as a transducer, that is to say, as um, a modulatable resistance interposed between a potential energy and the locus of actualization of this energy. This resistance is modulatable by uh, information exterior to both, ener to both potential energy and actual energy. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's not a, a huge issue, but it's just uh, the, the first bit, it should say the, the locus of, of actualization of energy or, or the place of actualization of this energy, something like that. Hmm, okay, yeah, that does, it does seem to clear it up because it almost does repeat the same thing twice in the English translation. Yeah, it, it just looks like the translator like sort of copied the or or got mixed up between those two points right there um but it's not it doesn't make a huge uh sort of change of meaning but i think it's just a little bit clearer with the um the 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 french is a little bit clearer than the english translation yeah no that, that's actually a quite different um yeah that makes me think that you should you should have written the translation can you actually say it one more time? I'm actually going to take it down. This is this seems important enough to be worth putting in my marginalia here. Um, so yeah. Uh, so the way I would translate that that sentence. So the the one in, in English, it starts a continuous relay can be defined as a transducer. So I would translate that same sentence. Um, uh, we can define a continuous relay as a transducer. That is to say as a, a modulatable resistance interposed between a potential energy and the locus of actualization of this energy. Uh, this resistance is modulatable by an information that is exterior to potential energy and to actual energy. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think, um, I mean, I haven't been uh, checking the, the French and the English um, all the way through, but every everything I've sort of uh, followed along. It's generally uh, a, a very good translation. Uh, just, you know, occasional bits where, you know, they made a mistake or, or where I disagree with the translation or something like that. It's, uh, it's, it's generally very good. I tried to make a little bit, a little note in my PDF. Not sure exactly where to cross out, but I guess it's where, um, when it says modulated by information that is external to the potential energy into the actual energy that first time that if you replace that between with between potential energy and a locus of resistance of this energy that makes more sense right 
uh, locus of actualization, not locus of resistance. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure I get the get it right if I'm going to make the note. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much because that that definitely confused me a tad. Yeah. Um, going going back to um, so, sort of uh, leaving aside the the translation issue, the the rest of the paragraph um, is a little bit obscure to me. Um, so again, there's more 50s electronic stuff with um, uh, uh, transducers and uh, and resistance, um, but it seems like the idea, or sort of the you know at the conceptual level, um, sort of beyond the the sort of pure uh, um, technical level, um, he's talking about uh, the idea of information being. Um, the information as the condition of actualization or as um, the the margin of indeterminacy between actual energy and potential energy. Um, but I'm not sure I understand exactly what that means. I don't know if anyone else has uh, has a better understanding of that. Hmm, well, it doesn't sound like it. <laughs> I don't know. I wish I wish I did. I remember I remember learning in physics about potential energy. Um, so I, I know it's it's a it's a fairly kind of basic concept, but I don't really deal with it enough to really know how to talk about it correctly. Yeah, um, I mean, potential energy has to do with um, uh, something that that can bring about uh, work in in a situation. So something like um, if you put a ball at the top of the hill, um, it takes a certain amount of energy to lift the ball, um, like from the bottom of the hill to the top. Uh, and then that energy is uh, you can is sort of stored in uh, the position of the ball. So the ball has potential energy that it it will it can roll down the hill. Uh, so a, a certain work can be carried out. Um, uh, but um, so I guess uh, I mean again I'm not I'm not very confident about this, but I guess the um, the notion here. Or, or the idea that he's presenting here is that a transducer um, is uh, an element of a technical object that receives information and then brings about uh, some sort of work or some sort of transformation. So it's um, um, uh, within the technical object, there's a certain potential energy stored, whether it's you know in the form of batteries in a in a electronic device, you would have. Uh, uh, energy stored at, in uh, a chemical form that can be transformed into uh, an electrical current, um, or it could be again, it could have a chemical storage of energy in the form of uh, fuel, gasoline, or or propane, or whatever it is. Um, uh, and then, by receiving information, uh, it's uh, it transforms that potential energy into actual energy that 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 carries out work of some kind. Um, but uh, yeah, again, I'm not I'm not too confident about what exactly it means to say that information um, uh, is the margin of indeterminacy between the uh, uh, actual or between the actual energy and potential energy. Um, it it seems like um, like our characterization of potential versus actual energy um, is kind of suited to the purposes that we we are 
putting forth or framing for which we're framing a system or a machine, the, op the operational context of it. So like, for instance, if, if you have like a bowling ball to the top of the hill and then you can say that it has a certain potential energy to roll down the hill, but what if, uh, what if it's like, there's no, um, there's no uh, hill for it to roll down, or if that's not part of the context, then you could just be like displacing a bowling ball without it having the, that energy. So it's, it's almost as though we, we define the kind of systemic contexts for which um, we can, whether things are potential or actualized within that systemic. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is what, what he's getting at entirely, but this is what I can make of, of this type of, of relationship, I guess, that we, we kind of, um, we have, we have systems of actualizations that are contextually mediated by the, the system in which we're, we've kind of designated. So, um, this, this kind of whatever is indeterminate in the system is kind of taking that role between the the potential and the actual. Does it make sense to like throw back to the, the figure of the governor that we looked at last week? Like that, that I'm just reading this last little passage to say that like is the governor an example of a transducer in the sense that, uh, you know, it's, uh, there's no, it's not actualizing energy, nor is it putting it in reserve. It's really just a kind of a way of patterning them together, basically through a, through a kind of mediating relationship of information. Yeah, that might be a good, uh, a good example. I think that helps. Um, so the, the governor, um, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't produce energy. It doesn't, uh, um, it doesn't, uh, doesn't actualize energy or, or store it in any way. It just, um, governs the, um, the process by which the potential energy in the fuel is turned into uh, work in the um, motion of the machine. Um, so yeah, I think that makes it a little bit clearer. Um, but uh, yeah, this is something I would want to come back to at some points and see if we can, you know, explain it a little bit better uh, after we've seen uh, further developments. Yeah, it, it does seem to be kind of the the control the control uh, function, I guess, in terms of a system, right? Whatever whatever functions to control as a control for the system, does seem to be the transducer. Well, yeah, the next looks like the next paragraph is going to talk a little bit more about trans transduction and and transducers. So maybe I'll go on, uh, and that's probably going to be our last paragraph, just looking at the time. Um, so I'll read this one. This notion, this notion of transduction in turn can be generalized. Presented in its purest state in transducers of different kinds, it exists as a regulative function in all machines having a certain margin of localized indeterminacy in their functioning. The human being and the living being more generally are essentially transducers. The elementary living being, the animal, is itself a transducer when it stores chemical energies and then actualizes them during the course of different vital operations. The sun illuminated this function of the living which constitutes in energetic potentials and expends them briskly. But Bergson was here concerned with showing a function of temporary contraction that would be constitu constitutive of life. The relation, however, between the slowness of accumulation and the instantaneous briskness of actualization does not always exist. A living thing can actualize its potential energy slowly, as in thermal regulation or muscle tonicity. What is essential is not the difference of temporal operating speeds of potentialization and actualization, 
but the fact that the living thing intervenes between potential energy and this actual energy as a transducer. The living thing is that which modulates, that in which there is modulation, and not a reservoir of energy or an effector. Nor is it enough to say the living assimilates. Assimilation is a source of potential energy that can be liberated and actualized in the functions of transduction. So um, he he brings up again uh, Bertson here, but he he wants to distinguish um, what he's pointing to here from uh, what Bertson uh, describes. Um, so it's not the difference, uh, or or what what is characteristic of the living being is not that it, it actualizes energy at uh, uh, instantaneously or or quickly as opposed to accumulating it slowly. So the the, the What's important is not the the speed of of actualization or accumulation, um, because uh, you can also actualize energy in slow ways, like he points to here, thermal regulation or or muscle tone. Um, um, but what is essential is rather the the role of um, modulating the actualization of energy. So it's. Uh, um, like we pointed to in the last section, the the function of control or governing the um, actualization uh, rather than um, serving as a store of energy or or being an actual actualization of energy. Hmm. So yeah, this concept of modulation um, has come up a couple times uh, in this section so far today, um, um, uh, drawing from. Uh, the concept that, that we saw um, in uh, the individuation book. Um, so that's something, um, yeah, I hadn't noticed that before, but yeah, he, he's drawing on that concept of modulation quite a bit in this uh, in this section. So that's uh, useful to, to keep that in mind as we're reading it. And modulation is the, um, the, ac the action, the archetypical action of the transducer, which applies um to life life forms and non-life forms correct right so transducers can be in uh technical objects um but then also he he characterizes transduction as being um sort of the essential characteristic of a living being so it, it's uh this um process of governing the actualization of energy is uh, like an essential characteristic of a living being. Hmm. Well, I I think today I'm I'm leaving with more questions than answers for for next time, but it's okay because we're still halfway through the part that we're reading, so to speak. So I think that's um, that's a reasonable place to be, and maybe it'll inspire me to do some some secondary readings before next time as well. Yeah, I would say this last, the last couple paragraphs have been a little bit obscure, um, and some of the this notion of a transduction um, uh, is a little bit obscure still. But um, yeah, we have a few more pages of this section still to go through next time, uh, and then the section following that, and then hopefully some of it will be cleared up a little bit um, after that. Sounds good. Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I cut you off there. I just said sounds good to me. Okay. Um, yeah. So we'll leave it there for for today. So we'll pick up uh, next time at uh, 
the top of 156. So we're just a couple pages from the end of section three. Um, uh, yeah, and uh, thank you again to 61 for um, editing the uh, recordings. Um, so if you want to go back and listen to the recordings, I think uh, you put them on YouTube, right? Yes, of course. I think I think y'all have the the link. Um, every, I hope everyone who's listening has has the link to the YouTube channel. If not, you can find it on uh, the Simonden Reading Group on YouTube because Simonden has like no name recognition. Like I've been trying to get people to join. I've been telling them how interesting and pertinent this text is, and they're like, "Oh, interesting!" But I can tell they're like googling Simonden. Like, who is this guy? You know. Um, but of course, he's a lot more popular, and um, um, he's a lot more influential than he is popular, I suppose. Yeah, uh, starting to gain a little bit more recognition now that um, some some stuff is translated into English. Um, um, you know, there's there's been I think probably the last well, starting from like early two thousands, there's started to be more secondary literature on him, and and. Uh, in, in French mostly, um, and then now that some of the stuff is translated, it, it, he's starting to get a little bit more uh, recognition, but uh, still, I think, under-recognized. Uh, obviously, someone that's got a lot of uh, interesting concepts and uh, um, doesn't really fit into any sort of easy categories of, um, of you know, philosophical thought. Um, so maybe that's partly why he's not as uh, recognized as, you know, some other people. Yeah, no, he's, he's definitely um, um, a, some, somewhat obscure and esoteric in certain regards, but in other ways, I think it's, he's very, um, very generally applicable and useful to to involve involve yourself in looking into, especially if if you're looking for kind of the Deleuzian uh, things, <laughs> if you're looking for things that inspired Deleuze or um, Deleuze's kind of Bergson uh, interaction with Bergson, Bergson's ideas. I think that Simone Dins Bergson probably is a really good way to get into understanding Deleuze's interactions with cybernetics and information theory. But um, among among other stuff, if you're interested in the cybernetic tradition more generally, I think Simone Dins is a, a fascinating character who's, who's sometimes overlooked because he's a kind of critic of cybernetic tradition, but is very useful to get into. And also in pure like nostalgia value because you know that people love old computer parts from the 70s and 80s you know it's i mean all these like like tubes you know electric tubes instead of circuitry it's like anything that is somehow inefficient has this nostalgic character to it so i predict that simonden will become more popular over time as people grow tired of contemporary uh tech technical philosophy and uh want to go back to to the this golden age of technological development and what what the perspectives were related to that but anyway thank you thanks to everyone for coming and i hope to see y'all next week yeah thanks everyone likewise, likewise enjoyed it take care guys bye, bye, -bye.